0: We are gonna continue in our series in Romans. We're gonna be looking starting at Romans chapter 13, uh, verse eight, and we're gonna go all the way through chapter 14, verse four. So if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Romans 13, chapter eight, and we're gonna go all the way through Romans 14, uh, verse four. While you're flipping there, there we go. I'll read all pa- I will read our passage and then I'll pray and then we'll get started. Romans chapter 13, starting at verse eight. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And who are you to judge on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the ability to read, to wonder about, to seek to understand, to make our best efforts to know and choose to do your will. Uh, we pray in this moment, God, that Christ would be real to us, that his love for us would be apparent, that as we gather together, we might grasp how much we are deeply loved in him and how we can apply that love to our day-to-day lives and to our comings and goings and to the way that we're going to, if it be your will, um, the way we're going to, to treat each other and, and walk this week, God. Help us in the next 45 minutes, to have things that will help us live a life worthy of the calling that we have in Christ. Help us to put off those works of darkness, to put on the armor of light, which is Christ, and help us to have our minds more conformed to him in this time. We ask this because he has made a way, not because we're perfect or we have perfect understanding, but because he has made a way for us to know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start today just by talking about um, and maybe empathizing with you that The last two years have been pretty difficult. Um, March 2020 hit and a lot of our lives changed forever with the pandemic. And what has catalyzed more difficulty in that last two years is not just the collective uh, uh, impact of the pandemic on individuals, but the impact that it's had on churches as well. Churches have been hit hard, uh, some to the point that they will not open again after the pandemic. A study recently showed that one in three churches are closing um, from March of 2020. There's a leader in our movement who leads churches, when I say our movement, I mean Acts 29, leads churches like ours and he says, most churches in our movement, uh, the congregations are divided into thirds. You have a third of the people that after the pandemic, I'll say after in quotes, um, after March, 2020, after this two years are still committed to the church, are still on board. You have another third who aren't quite sure because of some things that have happened over the last few years. And then in most churches, you have a third of people, a third of the people that have just left. They left during the last couple of years. And I can attest that personally, that's been true at this church. And that's been true with many of my friends who go to church. Many of them went to church and uh, over the last few years, they didn't like how their church responded to the 2020 election, or they didn't like how their church responded to the pandemic, they didn't like how their church responded to the racial protests, or to gun violence or to political scandals, and they left. And the impact of these things has not just hit churches hard, it's hit pastors hard as well. Pastors are resigning at increasing rates over the last couple of years. And the top three reasons pastors have been resigning over the last two years, according to a study, number one, loneliness, Number two, stress. Number three, political divisions. Put yourself in the shoes of a pastor in March of 2020. March, 2020, you're probably, you know, thinking it's gonna be a great year. Everyone was saying 2020 vision, you know, God's gonna give us vision for this year. It's gonna be great. And then the pandemic hits and all of a sudden, if you're like a lot of people, you had to start meeting on Zoom or Facebook Live or some virtual means and everything changes. And while you're meeting on Zoom and trying to keep your congregation together, you start getting emails. One person says, you know, if we gather again, you need to be really strict about masks and you need to make sure we're social distancing and we really need to take this thing seriously. Then you get another email from a person who says, hey, we can't live in fear. If we meet, you know, don't don't give into this mask stuff. It's all political. Don't give into this social distancing. It's all just made up by the government. We can't live in fear. Then someone calls you after those two emails and says, you didn't respond properly to those racial protests that happened a few weeks ago. I'm not sure if I'm going to stick around. Then someone else texts you and says, you need to talk about critical race theory and these liberal policies that are being put into the public schools. And if you don't, then I'm going to leave. Then another person calls you back and says, hey, you need to talk about election fraud. There's this pastor I've been following on YouTube since the pandemic hit, and he says that we need to talk about election fraud because it's the biggest thing that's facing American Christians today. Now, I'm, I'm making these up hypothetically, but ask Chris how the last two years have been, and ask him how accurate that was of how things have gone. The past two years have been hard here too. We've had people that have left Uh, We've had people that have said, we're not doing enough about this or saying enough about that. And in one sense, as pastors and as leaders, we should be open to criticism because any pastor is a person with flaws and we're going to do things wrong. We may miss things. There may be things that we have blind spots to. So it's not at all to say that all pastors are are not um, open to criticism or shouldn't be criticized because to be in ministry is to be a servant. And any of you that have worked in the service industry know that sometimes you get blamed for things that are your fault, and other times you get blamed for things that you have nothing to do with, that are things that you can't control but just happen to be the way they are. And on the other side, though, pastors should be open to criticism, but there are some times where everything a pastor said was wrong. You say, A, people want B. B. You say B, people say you shouldn't be silent on A. You say B, people ask, why do you hate A? Like there's no satisfying of what people want to hear, what you should be speaking to. This is the air some pastors have breathed the last few years. And if you go back to that study I mentioned, the reason pastors are resigning: number one, stress, number two, loneliness, number three, political divisions, all three of those are wrapped up in the scenario that I just mentioned. If you imagine being in March of 2020, having the stress of people telling you they're leaving, being isolated, not being around people, and having all of the political and challenging conversations that have happened over the last few years, that's difficult. Difficult for pastors, it's difficult for anybody. So think about the fact that many of us have been in in this church, and many of us have been in churches where if something wasn't handled correctly or up to their standards, the pandemic made it very easy for people to leave and not just leave, but not come back, right? You just stop gathering in person. And you know, when things start to loosen up, whenever people call for people to come back in person, people stop showing up. That's why churches are shrinking. But I think God has been gracious to us. Not I think, I know, because we are still here. We're still going. But we felt the, the impact of a lot of the things I've just mentioned. Like I said, we've lost people. And I don't think we've done everything perfect. There's always ways that we can improve the way that we minister and the way that we address things with wisdom according to Scripture. But I think if we are to continue as a church, we have to grasp the reality of what's happening in the end of Romans 13, the beginning of Romans 14. So the verses we just read. Romans 13, and we're going to actually do a bit of an out of order here, which is not something we typically do. Chris did the first half of Romans 13 last week. He got through half of it. So I'm going to pick up with the second half of Romans 13. I'm going to go into 14. Next week, we're going to go back to Romans 13 and talk a little bit more about God and submission to the government, because that's a pretty uh, deep issue that actually has a lot to do with what I'm talking about today. So we're going to come back to 13 next week, and then we'll continue on with 14 the following week after that. So Romans 13, where we started a bit last week, that talks about submission to God and our relationship between God and submitting to the government. And now we're, like I said, we're gonna pick up with the second half of 13 and we're gonna go into the beginning of 14. And in this, these verses, second half of 13, verse eight, all the way through to 14, verse four, we're presented with two different realities that I'm going to address. The first reality that I'll address is what's been tearing churches apart the last few years and really, this isn't particularly unique to our time. I'm just using the last few years as an example. But the, the first reality I'll address is then what's tearing churches apart. The second reality I'll address is I believe what can keep us together and what can unite us through the next few years and through really as long as the Lord has us to go as a body of believers. So that first reality actually starts in verse 14, or sorry, chapter 14. So if I haven't confused you enough, we're actually gonna start in chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now, weak in faith here means someone whose belief is, you could translate that word weak or delicate, someone who has a delicate faith. As believers, I think we actually all go through seasons of having a delicate faith. You can see this exemplified in Romans 8. If you look at Romans 8.1 and Romans 8.12 as a comparison, Romans 8.1, this is one aspect of our faith. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.12 and 13, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh nor to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of your body, you will live. Both of those statements are true. It's a bit of a tension that we live in. At the same time, we are forgiven for every sin we will commit, and we are called to live lives that put to death the sin that entangles us. So what happens when you live in that tension is you can become self-conscious. Am I really putting all of the sin, every minicule, molecule of it, to death? And the challenge in putting every molecule, every bit of our sin to death in light of what Christ has done for us is it difficult because the Bible doesn't always give us down to the granular detail, clear examples of what sin is and what sin is not. Sometimes it can be difficult to interpret, and that's where chapter four, verse one comes in with these opinions, or some translations say, not to quarrel over disputable matters. We can't lose sight of the context of um, welcoming each other despite our opinions or disputable matters in this passage because we're not talking about welcoming each other and not quarreling over sin, right? Sin, for example, is in Romans 13. It says, put off adultery, murder, stealing, coveting. These are clear in the commandments and they're clear throughout scripture. These are the types of sin that we are to live free of. And these are the types of sin that we are to fight because our fight is ultimately against sin, our fight is not against our brothers and sisters. So these sins that the Bible talks about, clearly in Romans 13, you'll see treated consistently throughout scripture. Whether anytime adultery or coveting or murder is mentioned, it's mentioned in a context that it's a negative thing. It's a sin that we should repent of. So do away with those things. Put them off. Live free of them. Christ died so that we could do that. But now we get to Romans 14, and we're told to welcome those who have a weak faith and not quarrel over our matters of opinion or disputable matters. Now, later in this chapter, we'll get two examples of disputable matters or opinions that people of that day would argue over. The first is food, what foods can and can't we eat as Christians. And the second is holidays, which goes later into 14. So there are some people who are maybe more weak or delicate in their faith, and they'd say, out of reverence for Christ, I'd prefer not to eat meat. And the reason they would say that isn't just because they are vegetarian like many people are today for trendy reasons, but it's because in that time and in that culture, there was a heavy uh, influence of idolatry around meat being sacrificed to idols. So some people would say, I wanna be really cautious, I just prefer not to eat meat. And that goes all the way back even to the, a lot of the Jewish understanding of the book of Daniel and how they ate vegetables only for a period of time and were strengthened by the Lord. So some people would say, because of that, I don't wanna eat any meat. Similarly with holidays, some people would say, yes, I'm free in Christ, but I still wanna make sure I'm fully honoring God and I'm fully submitting to him. So I'm still gonna recognize certain holidays. And then you had people who would read Romans 8.1 and say, look, I'm not condemned. I'm in Christ. I'm going to eat what I want, and I'm going to celebrate what I want. And the difficult thing is that for both of those positions, there's not a clear, consistent, prescriptive idea or set of verses in Scripture that fully endorses one over the other. That's why it's a disputable matter or an opinion. So I want to be clear When we talk about disputable matters, we're not talking about adultery, stealing, committing murder. So if you steal something from my car and you get caught, you can't say, well, hey, let's not quarrel. This is a disputable matter. No, that's a sin. The Bible always says that that's a sin. But where we come to those issues where we don't have clear, consistent prescriptive verses in scripture that say, this is a sin, don't do it. We classify those, like I said, as disputable matters or matters of opinion. And the direction we're given on those disputable matters is not to quarrel over them. And even more so, don't just quarrel, but welcome each other, despite perhaps your differences on disputable matters, because our fight is against sin and not our brothers and sisters. So in our time and in our place, disputable matters might sound something like, as a Christian, can you celebrate Halloween? It might sound something like, as a Christian, do you send your kids to public school? Do you send them to Christian school? Do you send them to, well, not send them, do you homeschool them? I guess you don't send them anywhere if you homeschool them. As a Christian, do you only listen to gospel music? Or do you listen to secular music, but you you bleep the curses out? (laughs) Or do you listen to any music because the Lord created everything so we can listen to whatever we want? How about alcohol? Do you drink only beer and wine? Do you drink whatever you want as long as you don't get into drunkenness, which is what the Bible calls and considers sin? And of course, last week we talked about politics. Candidate A has more of the policies that I agree with, but is maybe immoral in their moral character. Candidate B has some policies that I disagree with, but is a better example of what I would consider a Christ like leader. Which one do I vote for? Or, Do I vote at all? Because there are believers who would say, look, our citizenship is in heaven. All of this is just submission to a Babylonian authority that's gonna sin anyway, so we're just not gonna vote. There are a lot of Christians who believe that. And I'm pretty sympathetic to it, seeing how politics has gone the last few years. Murder, right? Murder is sin. Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. Does that mean Christians can own guns? Or maybe we own guns, but only for self-defense. Disputable matter. This is one that that may uh, prick some of your conscience. The Bible says that sorcery is a sin. Those who practice sorcery won't inherit the kingdom of God. So Harry Potter, you Harry Potter fans, does that mean that you are participating in, and there are Christians who believe that, there is serious debates about this, whether or not Christians should read Harry Potter. Do you play cards? Some of you, I'm probably triggering things that you grew up with because that was all of what Christianity was. Don't play cards, don't dance. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, or hang out with those that do. That was Christianity, right? These disputable matters. Now in every case case I just mentioned, you can give scripture to support some of what you believe. So for example, Halloween, the Bible says clearly consistently, we're not supposed to worship idols. So I'm no Halloween historian or scholar, but I don't think Halloween is rooted in the worship of Jesus. It's a pagan holiday. So you have people that would say, look, this is a pagan holiday, there's costumes, people are walking around in zombie stuff, pretending they're dead, nope, don't wanna celebrate it. And then you have other people who would say, well, if our church does a trunk or treat and I can get some candy and meet some people in the community, then maybe I'll do it. And then you have other people who would say, look, as long as I'm not physically bowing my knee to an idol, I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna meet my neighbors, I'm gonna tell some people about Jesus and I'm gonna get some candy. And all three of those positions, you could bring some scripture to justify where you stand. Even on the more, uh, we'll say, liberty side of Halloween, you could look at Acts 17 and see Paul going around, looking at the idols of his day and using it as a means to share the gospel with people. So disputable matters are difficult because there are multiple angles you could take to support your position. And like I said, when we don't have a clear, consistent picture in scripture, We have to welcome each other without quarreling. And like I said, in Paul's day, they had, just like we do, quarrels over holidays. You know, believers today have different positions on whether or not we should celebrate Halloween. Same thing on Christmas. Do you tell your kids about Santa Claus? Do you even recognize that part of the holiday or not? Now, Paul's exhortation to the believers at that day and to us is twofold, right? Number one, welcome each other. So in our days, it's welcoming those who maybe have a different opinion about Harry Potter, welcoming those who have a different opinion about Halloween. And then the second part is a little bit more difficult. Don't quarrel over your opinions. So when certain topics come up, and that back and forth starts, and people's voices start raising, and you can tell that people aren't really listening to each other, they're just getting their talking points off, and then the other person fires their talking points back, biblically, don't quarrel. And practically, when you hear that kind of dialogue, it's not effective. There are lots of studies that show that even if you are right, if you are shouting your position, if you're demeaning someone, you're not gonna convince them. They're only gonna believe what they believe worse because you shouted at them and because you belittled them. That's why biblically, even if you're right about a disputable matter, don't quarrel. You don't have to jump in to that argument. So when Halloween, politics, gun control, those things come up, we don't always have to jump into the deep end of the pool. And in fact, we're just, told not to, we're, just told, um, we're just not told not to not quarrel. We also have to welcome each other. Now this is where it gets difficult because welcoming each other could look like or sound like me and that believer differ a lot on politics, but I know that they had a hard week. I should check in with them. Me and that person who's really uh, cautious about COVID and hasn't gone out a lot in the last couple of years, I should give them a call, not to argue with them about mass, but to see how they're doing, see how I can pray for them. Me and that believer who have different opinions on disputable matters, we're still people. We're still God's children and we should still care about each other. If your only lens for how you evaluate and talk to people is disputable matters, all you'll get is quarreling. But if we see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ with much more in common in Christ than what we can disagree on, we can begin to build trust. Because the temptation here is to do at least two things. We can despise each other. This is verse 3 despise, which is like what I was just describing, saying, hey, those of you who don't celebrate Halloween like I do, or those of you, maybe the reverse, those of you who do celebrate Halloween, stay over there. That's despising each other. Verse three, we're not supposed to despise each other. Public school people, stay over there. That's weird. Or homeschool people, stay over there in your homeschool. No, we're not supposed to despise each other. And then the second piece is also, we're not supposed to pass judgment on those who abstain. Now, judgment here means that we make a clear and final statement about the state of something. This is or is not in absolute terms a Christian thing. This is or is not in absolute terms a Christian because of the way that they interpret this or the way that they do this disputable matter. So we can't say you're definitely not a Christian if you voted for, we can't say if you got the vaccine, you're definitely not a Christian. Why? Because those are disputable matters. Judgment is not appropriate in that sense. Now there are times where judgment is appropriate. Paul says very clearly, 1 Corinthians 3, he's actually not there, he's saying, now there are times where sin is clear. Um, 1 Corinthians 3, we have it here. 1 Corinthians 5, 3, for though absent in the body, so he's not even there, right? I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Now, some of you know the context here, adultery. Someone's committing adultery and he's saying, hey, I'm not even there, but I'm making an absolute clear judgment. That's sin. So there are times where we judge, but those are times when we're talking about clear sin issues and not disputable matters. So in the case of things that don't have a clear, consistent case in scripture, we can't judge, but there is something we can do and that we should do. And that's learn from our brothers and sisters in wisdom. I'll give an example from my own life. Um, I say this to his credit, although I won't mention who it was. There was a brother who came up to me recently and said, you know, I've been watching this show on TV. I really enjoy it, but it's got some explicit content and I just want your opinion on it. Do you think as Christians we can watch a show like this? Now this was a show, it's on cable TV. If I said the name, you'll all know what it is and I won't for sake of productivity. But I said, look, I can't give you book, chapter, verse in Scripture that you are absolutely in sin for watching this show. But I can tell you what the Bible has to say about lust. I can tell you what the Bible has to say about idle minds. I can tell you what the Bible has to say about guarding your heart. I can tell you what the Bible has to say about honoring your wife. And this this person was uh, engaged, so honoring your fiancé and how she might feel about that. I can't give you book, chapter, verse in Scripture that says you are absolutely wrong, I can give you wisdom that I think might apply. And I have to trust you to make the decision that you think is best. Sinking counsel was wise on that brother's part. And that's something that we all can do as believers. You can come to people in this church and say, hey, I'm struggling with this issue. I don't see a clear picture in scripture. Can you help me sort it out? We absolutely will. That's what community is here for. Proverbs actually says that that's a wise thing to do. We're not supposed to be wise in our own eyes, but we should seek out wisdom. We should seek out advice. We should seek out counsel. There are lots of things in life that we can seek each other's input on. We can and we should. Because, unfortunately, it would maybe be much easier if it it did, but the Bible does not have an exhaustive shows, list of shows that Christians can and cannot watch. I wish it did sometimes. I remember a few years ago, Eddie's laughing, he might remember this. Um, We were sitting in the living room of someone and this person had really strong political opinions. It was me, Eddie, and Chris and another person who had very strong political opinions. And they were really making a strong case to the point of yelling, I would almost say quarreling. And I think they ended their their spiel with like, I don't see how you could be a Christian and vote for, and I remember Chris in that moment, I think handled it really well. He said, hey, I agree with what you're saying, but I got to apply Romans 14. I can't bind the conscience of my congregation where the Bible doesn't give me clear means to do so. And again, just like TV shows, we don't have an exhaustive list of what political candidates, Christians in America in 2022 can and cannot support. A lot of our political opinions are just Romans 14. Make your decision, seek wise counsel, have your opinions, welcome each other without quarreling. Now, some of you are thinking, well, does that mean we can vote and do whatever we want politically with no recourse, no scrutiny? And the answer is not quite. Because we should push for agreement on the morality behind politics. So this is actually what Chris was talking about last week with Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement. The morality behind that, the idea that all people are created in the image of God, the idea that because of that, discrimination is wrong. We should agree on that. That's not a disputable matter. The methodology of the best way for the government to regulate that? Disputable. We should push for agreement on the morality of politics. We can agree to disagree about the methodology of politics. So again, murder is wrong. Morally, we as Christians should agree on that, and that should inform our politics. From a methodology standpoint, how do we limit murder from a political standpoint in America in 2022? Disputable. Like Chris said, even with Roe v. Wade last week, uh, it's going back to the States and we'll see what happens. The morality, we can agree on. The methodology, disputable. So like I said, some Christians are like, hey, I'm, I'm not even gonna get involved. I'm not gonna vote either. I'm a citizen of heaven and I'm gonna do my best to love my neighbor and to seek to do the best by them, share the gospel with them, make disciples. So this whole thing for some Christians is even optional. I know it's hard for some of people to hear that It's hard for me to hear that and even say that because there's a part of us that desires certainty. We want to know here and now whether or not we're right or we're wrong. And the temptation when we hear messages like this can be to think that like, well, everything that the Bible doesn't clearly condemn is just a gray area and people can do whatever they want because it's a disputable matter. And again, the answer there is not quite. We are not in a position to judge each other on disputable matters, but God is. And God knows our thoughts, he knows our actions, all the ones we do in public and in private. He knows our intentions that we know and the ones we don't know. He knows all of our hidden agendas. He knows all of our thoughts, he knows all of our words, and he will judge us. So we're not to judge each other on disputable matters, but it's before the Lord that ultimately we will stand and fall. There's a passage I appreciate that just jumps out from the Old Testament that's relevant here. It's from 2 Chronicles 1 through two. It's about King Amaziah. Amaziah was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. So King Amaziah looked good to the people. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but the Lord knew his heart. In a lot of these disputable matters, you might look right before people, but the Lord knows your heart. And so we can't judge them all, but the Lord will. Jesus says this very clearly. Uh, Matthew fifteen, eight, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So you can fool some people, but you're not fooling God. You don't drink and you condemn others and you, you look good before people, but you binge eat when you get home. The Lord knows. You, s- you celebrate Halloween and you claim Christian liberty and you say that I'm out sharing the gospel, but you're not. You're just greedy and you want candy. The Lord knows. You don't listen to explicit music, but you curse people out when they cut you off in traffic, even if it's in your head. The Lord knows. You watch that TV show and it's not X-rated. It's on cable, but you lust after the characters and it's a secret little thing you have every week that you enjoy. The Lord knows. You voted for that politician out of fear and bitterness towards the opposition. The Lord knows. I could go on, but the Lord knows. And we can't judge each other for these disputable matters, but that doesn't mean that all of our choices are morally equivalent. Like it's all just gray areas, so you know we, we all get a participation trophy. No. We will be held accountable for our actions and our intentions, and even on these disputable things, the Lord will judge. So some churches, and a lot of churches, in our place and time have been falling apart over the last two years, in particular because we lost sight of what we're supposed to judge and what we're not supposed to judge. And at times like this, we need to be reminded that our fight is against sin and not our brothers and sisters. Let me burst your bubble now and say that here, even in this small gathering of people, and if we extend it to online and the people that are on the membership that aren't here today— there are people in this congregation that differ with your opinions on race, They differ with your opinions on politics, on COVID, on music, on alcohol, on schooling, on guns, all those things, you name it. And when it comes to these disputable matters, we don't need to pass judgment. We can welcome each other without quarreling. And it's not because, of, it's not because all of our differing opinions are morally equivalent or that we're all right. Like, like we said, we all get a participation trophy. No, some of us are wrong. Sometimes I'm wrong. A lot of the times I'm wrong, right? I could be wrong on race, on politics, on COVID, on guns, on music, all of the above. But if the Lord in his grace allows me to learn more, to mature and to say, oh, I was wrong about that? I have to share that same grace to other people. I have to give other people that same patience because the Lord who knows it all doesn't automatically smite me for being wrong about things. We have to show that same grace to our brothers and sisters. Our fight is against sin. Our fight is not against our brothers and sisters. And I'll go as far as to say that if we can't do that, if we can't be patient with each other, despite where we may differ on disputable matters, the church, this church in particular, will have a hard time. We'll have a hard time staying open. And I'm saying that from very personal experience. I'll tell a quick story and then we'll get into 13. Um, Some good friends of ours were at a church, very similar in size, very similar in mission. Uh, This church was in Greensboro, North Carolina. It was in North Carolina, Um, but similar in size, similar in mission. They wanted to welcome people across different colors, cultures, capacities, Uh, small church, very diverse congregation. And we were there in 2015 and it was really encouraging because you saw it. You saw people from all different walks of life, people from all different ethnicities, people from all different cultural backgrounds and classes. It was beautiful. And this particular day that we were there in 2015 was the Sunday after Dylan Roof had gone into that church in South Carolina and committed that racist act of hate where he murdered the black congregants. This was the Sunday after, and we were one state up in North Carolina. So it was really powerful to be there because people were united. They were united in grief. You saw black people playing for white people and people from all different walks of life grieving and crying together. And I was like, wow, this is so encouraging. Uh, not encouraging in the sense that it was good, but, but to see that grief and to see the body of Christ come together like that. It was like, yeah, this is true Christian fellowship. This is really encouraging to be a part of, to see that in such a wicked act, some, beautiful, uh, some beauty can be seen in the body of Christ. So this was 2015, and our, it was two friends of ours that went there, and we were talking in 2017, and they were like, yeah, the church is shut down. We stopped meeting. You know what happened between 2015 and 2017? the election, 2016, and they couldn't get over the disputable matters. People arguing on Facebook, pastor's phone ringing off the hook, this person said this, this person said this, members leaving left and right, they shut down. Less than a year after a, a really beautiful experience of worship, they couldn't get over their disputable matters. So I'm not exaggerating when I say that, I think the future of this local church could hang on how well or poorly we live out these verses. That's why I started in chapter 14 and wanted to spend a bit of time there because the reality of not doing this, of not welcoming each other despite our differences on disputable matters, can and will tear a church like ours apart. But there is a reality, conversely, that can keep a church together. This is Romans 13, starting at verse, where are we? Let me go back here, verse eight. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now this sounds great, right? Love each other. Owe one another nothing except to, to love each other, which we all, in theory, like. But this is not love each other while you despise each other like we just talked about. So, you know, it's all love, but I saw what you said about the racial protest, so I'm gonna keep my distance. It's all love, but you listen, you, you, you read Harry Potter, so I'm gonna delete you out my phone, right? You can't kind of use that pretense of love and then do things that are despising each other. Anytime you see the word love in the Bible, just helpful exercise. Run it through the definition that 1 Corinthians 13 gives love. There we go. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So contextually, when it says we owe one another love, that means that we have to love each other, despite being on, not being on the same page about this or that political incident. We have to be patient with each other, even if we're in disagreement. We have to be kind, we can't envy, We can't boast, even if you think you have a right understanding or a right opinion of something. You can't be arrogant if you happen to be right and someone happens to be wrong. You can't be rude. You can't insist on your own way, which might mean I always have to have the last word or I always have to have things phrased in my proper language or terminology. I always have to have things balanced. Sometimes people say balance just as a means to get more of their opinion in. This has to be more balanced. Love doesn't insist on its own way. Love isn't irritable. We should seek to be people who can be around each other and not be triggered when this or that disputable matter is mentioned. Love isn't resentful. Love doesn't continually play over the argument over and over again in your head. If I would have said this, then they would have, would have totally... Love is not resentful. Love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. Love doesn't enjoy to see other people proven wrong. Love bears all things, believes all things, endures all things. That means that we believe the best each other, about each other. We don't assign ill motives or intentions. We don't jump to conclusions. And love never ends. This is not a one-time, like, hey, we're going to get together and be nice. This is just how we treat each other. That's hard. That's difficult. So when this verse says we owe each other love, it's not saying we owe each other tolerance. It's saying we owe an active posture of welcoming each other, even when we don't line up on the disputable matters or opinions. Verse nine, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment is summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. All of the moral commandments in scripture, this is in your discussion guide too, are summed up in loving each other. Jesus said something similar when asked what the greatest commandment was. Jesus said, Matthew two thirty-seven: love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the prophets hang on these two. So, and we'll probably dig into this more in two weeks from now when we get into 14. The, the question we should ask ourselves when it comes to disputable matters, to matters of opinion is not, well, how much can I get away with? How much alcohol can I drink before it's not drunkenness? Like down, down to the milliliter, how much can I do? How nice of a car can I buy before I'm not seen as being immodest or being greedy? The question we have to ask ourselves, how does this display my love for God? And then the second question is like it. How does this display my love for my neighbor? Those are the questions we ask, not how much can I do before I'm sinning? So when you think about your politics, how does this display my love for God? How does this display for my love for my neighbor? When you think about the TV you watch, how does this display my love for God? How does this display my love for my neighbor? Everything, alcohol, the, few, the, the types of things you buy, the, the ways you think about all these disputable matters. And I've had many friends who have modeled this well for me. Love in a situation of alcohol might look like, hey, I can drink, I can handle alcohol. It's not a problem for me. But when I'm around people who don't drink, I don't drink. Or when I'm around people who I know have struggled with drunkenness and have a powerful testimony and don't want to be tempted, I don't drink because that displays my love for my neighbor. Love also might mean that if you have a PhD understanding of some political issue and someone says something wrong, you don't automatically jump down their throat and correct them. Love could mean being patient with someone, bearing with them, figuring out how they came to the understanding that they did and building up years, perhaps decades of trust before you talk to them about the knowledge that you have because you've built a level of trust where you can talk about a disputable matter without quarreling. Love is important because we have something bigger coming, a reality that's bigger than all of our disputable matters. Verse 11, "'Besides, you know that the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for your salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies, not in sexual immorality, not in sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." So from the first day that you became a Christian, every day after that, you're one one step closer to heaven. One step closer to being free from the sin that plagues you and me and everything in the world. And one step closer to enjoying God and enjoying fellowship with other believers forever. Think about that when you're tempted to despise a brother or sister about their opinion or their stance on a disputable matter. I'm going to be with this brother or with this sister in heaven for all of eternity, worshiping God together. Do I really need here and now to settle or to to fight with them over this disputable matter? Maybe sometime the answer to that question is yes. But more often than not, it might be that the Lord is asking you and he's asking me to show grace and patience to people because that's the grace and patience we want the Lord to show us, to be patient with us, to work on us slowly and gently as he prepares us for glory. One of the works of darkness, this verse talks about um, Romans 14, works of darkness. Quarreling, jealousy. One of the works of darkness that has plagued a lot of churches over the last few years has been these disputable matters. They've taken a front seat. And sin, that's the, that's the, the twisted thing about it. It's just how you know there might be a demonic agenda behind it because the disputable matter takes the front seat and the good old fashioned sin takes a back seat. So while people are arguing about race and politics and COVID, there's still good old-fashioned adultery happening, there's still good old-fashioned divorce happening, there's still good old-fashioned fornication, good old-fashioned addiction to pornography, good old-fashioned jealousy, good old-fashioned anger, drunkenness, all those clear, non-disputable sins are still happening and have still happened over the last few years. But if you followed certain headlines, you would think that race or politics or COVID has been what's destroying the church And those disputable matters, like I said, often distract us from the good old-fashioned clear sins that we're called to put to death. Remember, our fight is against sin, not our brothers and sisters. So if someone has a different opinion on you than masks or the vaccine or race or politics, but their marriage is crumbling and they're addicted to porn, prioritize. Prioritize the clear sins over the disputable matters. The hardest part, even about thinking about for me, preparing and, and getting ready to, to go through this, these passages, was talking about disputable matters without giving you my opinion on all these disputable matters, because I have views on all these things we just discussed, some of which I could maybe talk for, at length about on race or guns or politics or COVID or alcohol or any of those things. I have a stance, I have thoughts, I have things that I've thought through about them and things that I would offer as other believers at times as things that might be wise on how to think about them. And there are sermons where we will do that, where we will give more prescriptive wisdom on how we think we should think about some of these issues in our day and in our time. But today, this sermon has to end where the text ends. And you could do that with chapter 13, or you could do it with chapter 14. Chapter 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh. Chapter 14, at the end of the day, we are going to face And stand before the Lord, the judgment seat of Christ. And if we are in Him, we will be upheld. Putting on Christ means putting on love. It's accepting and receiving His love. It's putting on the love that He showed us on the cross when He died for us. It's not putting on more commandments, it's not putting on more rules. Like I said, some of you, and I'm I'm like this too, sometimes we want the list of commitments. We want the list of shows that we can or can't watch. We want the list of down to the milliliter, the amount of alcohol we can or can't drink. We want the businesses we can and cannot support, the ones that we should boycott. The reason the Lord doesn't give us those is because he gave us 10 commandments and we've broken those plenty of times. So why would we want 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 when we're struggling with the first 10? So put on the Lord Jesus Christ, put on love, receive his love, receive his forgiveness and make no provision for the flesh. And as we navigate these things, seek wisdom from brothers and sisters, seek wisdom from those in community, invite them to speak into your life about the entertainment you consume or the way you think about certain issues or the way that you navigate decisions that don't have clear prescriptive um, guidance in the Bible. And ask your leaders as well, Because we as a church, that's our job, to help each other navigate and to put off sin and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, our fight is against sin and not our brothers and sisters. So we're gonna sing a song to close in worship. And after that, we're gonna take communion, which is just a sign for us putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and receiving his grace. Because when it comes to sin and disputable matters, we all need grace. We're gonna stand before the judgment seat of God one day. The judgment seat of Christ. And He will judge all of our thoughts, actions, intentions, all of it down to the granular detail. And if we are in Him, we will stand. And He can sustain us, give us wisdom, fill us with a spirit so that we can live and put our sin to death. Let's pray and then we'll sing. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your example. Thank you for showing us in Jesus the perfect example of loving God and of loving neighbor. That we owe each other and should walk in accordance with that love God. Not in ways that we are perfect, but ways that show that we have understand, understood or comprehended the grace that has been shown to us. Lord, help us to have wisdom, to even seek wisdom from brothers and sisters on how we can live lives that are truly free from sin and, and live lives that don't need to be micromanaged, but live lives that are lives reflective of love. Love for God and love for our neighbor. Help us to put off sin. Help us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.